0: Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 11, reading verses 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17 in the 11th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were graft in among them and with them partakest of the root and hatness of the olive tree, and then he goes on with his argument, Burst not against the branches. But we are concerned at the moment in considering this whole question which the apostle deals with in these two verses. We shall hope to proceed to the argument that he bases upon that later. Now, last time we looked at the two verses In a more or less technical manner, in order to decide and to determine what exactly the apostle is saying, at any rate as far as words is are concerned, and uh, we found that what he really is dealing with here is the subject of the relationship of the Jews to the Gentiles in the economy of God, and especially with regard to God's plan of redemption. He is concerned about their individual positions, and he is concerned about their relationship to one another, and as I say, as a whole, uh, to God's great plan and purpose. In particular, he is concerned, of course, about the position of the Jew. That's the object of the Not only of this particular subsection, but of uh, the whole of chapters 9, 10 and 11 of this great epistle. So that is the thing that he rarely has at the back of his mind, the peculiar relationship of the Jews to God's purpose of salvation, but that here in particular in terms of their relationship to the Gentiles. Now, uh, this uh, subject uh, has two great dangers. One is uh, to uh, claim too little for the Jews, the other is to claim too much. We tend to go, in this matter, as in most others, uh, from one extreme to the other. That's why it's so important that we should be clear in our minds as to what the great apostle really is teaching us about this matter. Now, we've seen that he argues with respect to the Jews in this way, that if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. If the first portion of dough baked into a cake is offered to God, that, as it were, sanctifies the whole mass, the whole lump of the dough. And he will work out the most important argument with respect to the Jews from that particular picture. But then he takes up a second picture in which he says, if the root be holy, so are the branches. He's thinking of a tree. And as he says, the uh, root, which was Abraham is holy, well, there is something of that that passes into the whole tree. There is the picture in the 16th verse. Then he comes uh, to deal with what has actually happened historically, and says, if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, referring to the Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were graft in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree. We went into that point that some people say that this is quite wrong horticulturally speaking. To which the answer was that the apostle himself says that it is unusual. This is the grace of God. God is doing something that is contrary to nature as he puts it in verse 24. This is the whole glory of the gospel of salvation. It is God's action. It is miraculous. It is supernatural. It is above nature in that sense. Very well. Now there we've dealt with the technicalities as it were and the important question before us is this. What then does he mean by this olive tree? What is this olive tree to which he refers? This is the most important subject. From the standpoint of the future of the Christian church and the future of the Jews as a nation nothing is more important than this. And uh, there has been a good deal of discussion, inevitably, therefore, uh, with respect to it. But uh, I'm going to confine attention to two main views. They really come down to two main views as to what is meant by this olive tree. The picture is that here is an olive tree. Certain branches are cut off and cast away. Other branches are put in. And these others belong to a wild olive tree. But what is the olive tree? Well, now, there are those who say that the olive tree is the Jewish nation. Abram is the root. The tree is the Jewish nation. It's interesting to notice that Holden belongs to this company. Holden says the Jewish nation was God's olive tree, quite specifically. This uh, recent uh, commentary in the Tyndale series by Professor F. F. Bruce, I find uh, difficult to decide exactly which view he takes. He puts it like this. He says, the olive is Israel, the people of God, the wild olive tree, the wild olive is the Gentile world, from which I take it that he tends to agree with Holden that the olive is the children of Israel, the Jewish nation. But he, I, I'm not certain because he adds this other phrase, the people of God, which makes it doubtful in my mind as to which of the positions he really is in. But as he does contrast it with the Gentile world, I'm assuming that he also, like Alden, believes that the olive tree is the Jewish nation. Now then, I want to suggest to you that that is a wrong interpretation. And I want to give you the reasons which lead me to say that. Incidentally, uh, I find myself in the agreement with the vast majority of the older commentators, Kelvin and Hodge and others, who reject this idea that the olive tree is, is the Jewish nation. What are the reasons? Well, here are some of them. If the olive tree is the Jewish nation, well, then the teaching is beyond any question, it seems to me, that Gentile believers in Christ, were graft or grafted onto their tree, therefore automatically become Jews. it would mean that the Gentile believers are grafted into the Jewish nation, which seems to me sufficient in and of itself to put out that interpretation once and forever. You've got to work out the implications of a statement. And if the olive tree is the Jewish nation, And we as Gentiles are grafted into that, well then we are grafted into the Jewish nation. And of course I would argue that the whole of the New Testament is here to tell us that that is not what happens to us. Very well, there's one reason. Then there does seem to me to be a, a contradiction, even in the case of those who seem to espouse that view. Take for instance Professor Bruce. He goes on later to say, in such an unusual grafting of putting this wild into the good, The old stock, he says, is reinvigorated by the new graft. And the new graft in turn, fed by the sap of the olive stock, is able to bear much such fruit as the wild olive could never produce. You see the argument? Well now then, if the uh, olive tree itself is the Jewish nation, well then what we are told is that the coming in of the Gentiles has reinvigorated the Jewish nation. But the apostles' whole argument is that the Jews as a nation have been cast out. Far from being reinvigorated by the coming in of the Gentile believers, they've gone out that the Gentile believers may come in. In other words, it's a blank contradiction of the whole of the argument of the apostle in this particular section and indeed everywhere else at the same time. So there's a second objection. But come to a third. Later on, we shall find that the Apostle refers to the Jews as a nation, as branches, not as the tree, but as the branches. You see, he's got a picture of a tree with branches. Some branches cut off, other branches put in. There is a difference between the tree and the branches. And what he says about the Jews as a nation later is that they are the natural branches, not the tree. But the natural branches, that again, it seems to me, is a most important and vital argument against this identification of the olive tree with the Jewish nation. And then, firstly, these all follow from one from another. He says that we as Gentile believers have, have been grafted in and with them partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree. But the Jewish nation is not the root and fatness of which we receive. Not in any sense at all. The Jewish nation is something that has stumbled, that has failed and has been cast out for that reason. So we receive no nutriment from the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation obviously therefore cannot be described as the root and the fatness. And so I conclude in the fifth place, That this is uh, an entirely wrong interpretation of the meaning of the olive tree for this further reason. That the remainder of the argument doesn't fit in with that exposition at all. So we must of necessity seek a different one. Now, how how has this confusion arisen? Well, it seems to me that what we are up against at this point is the difficulty with any analogy whatsoever. It is almost impossible to get an analogy, an an, an illustration, which rarely does convey perfectly the meaning that you want to to convey. So, what the apostle has to do, like every preacher has to do, is he has to take on one aspect of an analogy. You see, the danger is in reading this to look at it like this. Now, here are two olive trees. Here is a good one, and here is a wild one. And then you proceed from that, and then you must say that, well, of course, this is the contrast between the Jewish nation and the Gentiles, and so you fall into that particular error. But that isn't what the apostle is saying at all. His meaning, it seems to me, is quite clear, as long as we don't mechanically apply all the details of the illustration. Very well, then, that leads us to this question. What, then, do I suggest is the olive tree? And my answer is, the olive tree means the people of God. The people of God. Now, they have given many names. They are called the covenant people. They are called the redeemed. They are called God's nation. They are called the Israel of God in chapter 6 of the epistle to the Galatians. But this is the best term, it seems to me, is to call them The people of God. God's redeemed people. Now there is the fundamental thing. Let's work it out together. The uh, key to the understanding of the olive tree, as I see it, is really given to us in the ninth chapter of this epistle, in that famous sixth verse. I remember saying many times over that that sixth verse in the ninth chapter is a most important verse. It's the key to the understanding, really, of the whole of these three chapters. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Why? Well, now, here's the answer. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. That's the thing. That's the key to the solution. In other words, as we were reminded there in the ninth chapter, and as indeed, though, the Bible, in a sense, reminds us, Two nations came out of Abraham. Abraham as the father. Abraham as the root. Abraham leads to two nations. One of them is a natural nation and people. The other is a spiritual nation and people. You remember that he goes on there in the ninth chapter to say, neither because they are of the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Ishmael was a child of Abram, as Isaac was. And yet, you see, there is this vital difference. It is this spiritual seed. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. These are not God's people. But the children of the promise accounted for the seed. These are the people all along. And you remember how he went on working out that analogy and illustration. You get it in exactly the same way In the children of Isaac, in Jacob and Esau, both a natural Jew, but only Jacob is the spiritual child. He, therefore, constitutes the seed. Now, the whole difficulty arises when people forget that vital distinction. It's very easy to slip into this trouble because, after all, they all do come out of Abraham. And promises were made to Abraham, some of which were purely material, others purely spiritual. But there are points at which they coalesce, and they seem to be one. Hence, the confusion. That, of course, was the ultimate reason why the Jews rejected our Lord and Savior. And that is why they've continued in trouble. And that is why many people today, concerned about these prophetic questions, get into equal trouble. They forget this vital distinction. Between the two nations, if you like, that came out of Abraham. And the fact, which complicates it still more, that at certain points they're both one. Very well. Now there is the key uh, to the understanding. Now I'm uh, putting it to you that the olive tree here is nothing but the spiritual nation. That's what I mean by the people of God. Not the natural nation but the spiritual nation that came out of Abraham. These two, as I say, are related, and yet it's vital that we should realize that they're separate. Now, in Abraham, of course, they were one. He is the father of birth, the natural and the spiritual, the material, if you like, nation, and that which is purely spiritual. And in general, This is true also of all the descendants of Isaac. In Isaac again there are one. In Jacob again there are one. But you notice that in every one of these instances there is also a division. One of the sons of Isaac is natural only. The other one is spiritual. Spiritual and natural. And so it goes on as you follow out the working of this principle. You remember that uh, Jacob was actually called Israel himself, and it is through his twelve sons that you really see the nation of Israel, as it were, uh, fully grown, and you're able to look at this developed nation. Now, the nation of Israel in general is regarded in the Old Testament as God's people. In that sense, they were the church at that time. Or, as Paul puts it here, they were certainly the natural branches in this olive tree. They were the first to appear, they were the first on it. And so you often find them addressed as such. God addresses the whole of the nation of Israel as his people. You remember how in the book of Exodus, in, in connection with the giving of the law, you have this great example of this at the beginning of the 19th chapter, where, there, where God addresses the whole nation. He turns to them and he reminds them that he is uh, their God, and he makes certain promises to them. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on the eagles' wings, and so on. And... Uh, If you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And so God addresses them as his people and as his nation and makes certain promises to them. You will find uh, that he speaks to them in the same way in many other places. There's an example in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. And you remember how. Stephen, in his great address, recorded in the seventh chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, refers to the nation of Israel in general as the church in the wilderness. The church in the wilderness. So you are entitled, therefore, to look upon the children of Israel as it were the church under the old dispensation. God is there, as it were, looking at the whole nation as his people. But, you must never forget that distinction which is drawn there in verse 6 of the ninth chapter. They're all of Israel, but they're not all Israel. There is this general view, there is this particular view. Very well, though. The olive tree, the true people of God, are those to whom the apostle is really referring. There are others who belong to it, or who seem to belong to it for a while, but they don't really belong to it. The olive tree constitutes only these true spiritual people of God. With them you always have these others, and at times you can't tell the difference between them, but all is known unto God. The Lord knoweth them that are his. But here there is this essential distinction. Now then, what is the apostle's teaching then? Well, we can put it like this. The unbelieving Jews, though they are Abraham's seed, and though in a sense they are the natural branches upon this olive tree, because it was all one in Abraham, and because they seem to grow together, Because of their unbelief, they are cut off, and they don't really belong to the olive tree. Now, that is my justification for rejecting the first suggestion that the olive tree is the nation of Israel, and insisting rather that it is the people of God. These others appear to belong to the people of God, but they don't belong to the people of God. They are not all Israel that are of Israel, they are as it were natural branches, but they're cut off, thrown away, just to show that they really have never truly belonged to this olive tree, this spiritual people of God. And that is what the apostle is saying here, that the unbelieving Jews were cast off at this time because of their unbelief. They no longer belong to the olive tree in any sense. But on the other hand, he says, the believing Gentiles are grafted in They have come from the outside. They didn't belong to the nation of Israel. And therefore, in a sense, you can call them a wild olive tree. But the only point of importance is that they don't belong to the visible nation of Israel. They are right outside. They are Gentiles. But, says the apostle, because you have believed, you have been brought in and you've been grafted in. You haven't been grafted into the Jewish nation, but you have been grafted into the people of God. Now, that's the point. And that is why I say we must insist upon saying that the olive tree is the people of God. Now, the apostle tells us in many places that when the Gentiles believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're not only grafted into this olive tree, into the people of God, but because of that they become Abraham's children. And they begin to share in all the blessings of this covenant people of God that trace their origin and their beginning and their root back to our father Abraham. You remember the particularly clear statement of this which is to be found in the epistle to the Galatians and in chapter 3. You remember that last verse which puts it like this. Now, if you be Christs, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise? He's writing to Gentiles. And Gentile believers are not only Christ's, they are Abraham's seed. They're in this olive tree, this covenant people of God that come out of Abraham. And they're in that, they're grafted into that, so they become Abraham's seed. They're children of Abraham. And heirs, according to the promise. Now there, as I would suggest to you, is the true explanation of what is meant by this olive tree. And you can see the importance of putting it like this and of rejecting the idea that it means the nation of Israel. But now having put that to you as an exposition, let us go on to draw the conclusion or the lessons, if you like, the doctrinal lessons and conclusions that arise inevitably from all this. And they're most important. And I would divide them into two sections. First of all, certain conclusions about the Christian church. These come first, it seems to me. The apostle is dealing here with the Christian church. And the relationship of Jew and Gentile to the church and to one another in the church. We'll start with that, and the second lesson will be about the Jews in particular, in this whole matter. Those are the two main subjects. Now, there are some very important things to be learned here about the Christian church. Here is the first. The Christian church is not something entirely new. Now, many people make that false statement. They say the church is something absolutely new. There was no such thing at all until you come to the New Testament times. And then you get an entirely new beginning. Something entirely new comes into being, the Christian church. The church, rather. I shouldn't say Christian church, to make it clear. The church comes then into being. Now, here I think we are shown very plainly and very clearly that that is quite wrong. It is quite an error to teach that. The peculiarly and specifically Christian church came into being then. But we mustn't say that the church came into being then. I've already quoted you Stephen's statement in which he refers to the church in the wilderness, the children of Israel. We must get hold of this idea of the people of God. That's the fundamental thing in the Bible. The people of God. Under the old dispensation, mainly, almost exclusively, the children of Israel. New Testament, almost exclusively Gentiles, with but a few Jews, this remnant according to the election of grace, about which the apostle has been speaking. But, the thing is, that the church is not something new, which only starts in the New Testament. There is a fundamental error. But let's go on and see how this works out. Secondly, I would say, therefore, that God's people are always one. They're one in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, the apostle proves that very clearly by this analogy of the olive tree. The olive tree didn't come into being in the New Testament. The olive tree has been there since Abraham. He is the root. The lump we saw with the patriarch. So it's been going since then. You mustn't say that the people of God, the redeemed, start after Calvary or after our Lord's ascension or after Pentecost. You mustn't say that. The people of God are in the Old Testament as well as in the New. It's the whole point of this illustration. The apostle's entire argument is going to depend upon this great statement. It all goes back to Abraham. So you've got God's people in the Old Testament... God's people in the New Testament. And God's people are always one. They're always in this olive tree. There's only one olive tree. It's the same one always. The tree is always one. Some branches go off, some branches come in, but the tree remains one. And there is only one. So the church, God's people, is one always Old Testament as well as New Testament. Now, there are certain differences. But they're not fundamental differences. There are differences in the degree of understanding. There are differences in the degree of blessing. There are many particular differences. But we mustn't allow these detailed differences in form to send us into the error of saying that you finish with one thing in the Old Testament, start with something absolutely new in the new. Now, this has often troubled the Christian church. Quite early on, there was... A heresy which was guilty of this and which rejected the whole of the Old Testament. And there are many people today who tend to do that. One sometimes hears even evangelical Christians as if they're more or less dismissing the Old Testament. They don't see why we need it any longer and so on. They've never seen the continuity of the people of God and that the people of God are one in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But this is a vital part of the teaching here. It's the whole thing the apostles say. We've misunderstood the olive tree completely, unless we are clear about that. Then I go on to say this. There is only one way of salvation. And it's always been the same one. Now, we've seen that at great length in this epistle. The apostle proves that in chapter 4. He says, your father Abraham was saved by faith. There has never been a way of salvation except that by faith. Never. And here, of course, he puts it in the picture of the olive tree. It is only our relationship to this that saves us. Doesn't matter who we are. It is always by faith. It is always by supernatural action. It is God's supernatural action. What saves anybody is to be put into the olive tree. Nothing else can save at all. What saves us is that we are brought into relationship with the root and fatness of this olive tree. This is eternal life, if you like. This is the life that God gives. And he gave it in the Old Testament as well as in the New. Abraham, remember, is our father. We are the children of Abraham. Abraham was saved as much as we are. Now, people don't realize this. They think these Old Testament saints were not saved, but they were. They, are in, they were in the kingdom. They are the children of God, as much as we are. And we are the children of Abraham, because we are the children of faith. They received of the root and fatness of the olive, and that is precisely what we receive. We are only Christians, and we are only saved, because we are born again, because... We have all the results of being born again. We have this life, this root and fatness of the olive tree. That is the only thing that saves. It's saved in the Old Testament. It saves in the New. It always will save. Now, you know, there are people who say that in some future time, the Jews are going to be saved by keeping the law. That's an absolute denial of this picture. There is only one way of salvation. There is only one olive tree. And it is being in this that saves and nothing else. It has always been God's only way of salvation. So, our fourth lesson is this one. That uh, nationality and natural birth is in no sense the deciding factor. There's only one deciding factor, and that is our faith relationship to Abraham. In this olive tree, you may be a Jew by nature, you may be a Gentile by nature. It doesn't matter. Now that's the whole point that he's making here. The Jews tended to say that they alone were saved. The Gentiles, as the apostle is going on to tell them here, were in danger of saying, we alone are saved. They were bursting themselves as over against the Jews. They both wrong. Nationality doesn't come into it at all. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, barbarian or Scythian, bond nor free, male nor female. Doesn't matter at all. The only thing that does matter is are you engrafted into this olive tree or are you not? So you see, he cuts the ground from people who tend to rely upon their nationality or their natural birth or any of these things that are true of us by nature. That's all here. It's all brought out in this wonderful picture of the olive tree. And it's the whole point that the apostle is arguing. And then I make my fifth point and it follows, which is this. The blessing which all who belong to the olive tree are always the same blessings. That follows, doesn't it? Root and fatness of the olive tree. That's where it all comes from. It rises there in the sap. There comes the life, the nutrient. Well, it's always the same. It was the same at the very beginning. It is the same now. It's the same for the natural branches. It's the same for these other branches that are grafted in contrary to nature. It's all the same. They receive exactly the same blessings. Now, this is, of course, the great point that is made by the apostle in that section of scripture which we read at the beginning out of the epistle to the Ephesians. And it is astonishing how people seem to miss this most wonderful teaching which the apostle gives not only here in Ephesians but in the statement I've already quoted at the end of the third chapter of Galatians and which is, of course, a vital part of his whole teaching about God's grand purpose of redemption in history. You see, what he says is this. Here he is writing to these Gentile Ephesians. He says, remember that you in time past were Gentiles in the flesh, You were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. But remember, he says, at that time, you were without Christ, outside Christ. Well, what was true of them as such? Well, he says, you were then aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. He said, you as Gentiles... You had nothing to do with God's commonwealth. There's another term, God's people, God's commonwealth. And you were strangers from all the covenants of promise that God had made with his covenant people. You had nothing to do with these. You were outsiders. But immediately he adds, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. In what sense are they made nigh? In the next verses he goes on to show how they have been made nigh by our Lord's work upon the cross, where he's broken down the middle wall of partition and has reconciled them by the blood of his cross and has made of twain one new man, has preached peace to you that were afar off and to them that were nigh, to Gentiles and to Jews. Now then he says in the 19th verse, you, because you've become believers, Are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and are of the household of God. You were, he says, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenant of promise. You're no longer that. You are no longer strangers and foreigners. Well, what are they? Well, they become fellow citizens. They're of the household of God. In other words, it's another way of saying you were outside the olive tree, but now you're inside the olive tree. Before, all these wonderful covenant promises had nothing to do with you. They have now got everything to do with you. You're inside. You belong to the olive tree. And now, therefore, you are heirs of the promises. You are heirs of all the blessings of salvation that God has promised to his covenant people. Well, then you see in the third chapter of Ephesians, he goes on to explain this a little bit more in detail. He says, I am, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord for you Gentiles. He says, you've heard about this dispensation of the grace of God which has given, been given to me for you. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his early apostles and prophets by the Spirit. By which he means, not that this was entirely unknown in the old dispensation, because that isn't true. You have those wonderful prophecies of Isaiah and others who see the Gentiles coming in, but it wasn't understood clearly. It hadn't been revealed in its fullness, as it has now been revealed, he says, to his early apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is this mystery? Here it is. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Could anything be clear? Fellow heirs of the same body. Yes, in the same tree, the same olive tree. This is the way in which the blessings of salvation to Christian people are described. They're the old blessings promised to Abraham, repeated so many times uh, to David and to others. All that God has promised to his people, to the redeemed people. These are the things that matter. And what is true of us as Christians, therefore, is that we are now brought into the realm of these ancient promises. As I say, this isn't something absolutely new. What's happened to us is that we are allowed to share in what had been received and experienced by the people of God through the centuries of the Old Testament dispensation. That's how we are described in the New Testament. We mustn't cut this absolute division between Old Testament and New. No, no, it's the form that has changed. It's no longer one nation. It's now many nations. It's now the church. But essentially, it is exactly the same thing. And all the blessings that we enjoy are those blessings which have been promised to Abram, seed of old, which until this point only the gems had received, but now the Gentiles also are made fellow heirs. Brought into the same position, put into the same tree, are members of the one and the same body. Now that is the teaching of the Bible with regard to the relationship of Jew and Gentile in the Christian church. And it is on the basis of this that the apostle will be able to work out the argument in the rest of this chapter. But let me just deal with this second great lesson, the second conclusion, which I mentioned just now, about the Jews. Now, while all that I've been saying is... True in the teaching of the New Testament. And while it is true to go on repeating. That it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. In the matter of salvation. Only the only thing that matters is faith. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Being related to this olive tree. The people of God. Receiving the life divine. Right? All that is absolutely true. But at the same time. The apostle is concerned to teach her. That the Jews, speaking in a national sense, and of an earthly people, is, the apostle is concerned to say that, they have, that there is something special and unique about their position. Now, we mustn't lose sight of this. As I've been pointing out, the danger is to make either too much or too little of the position of the Jew. I'm now dealing with the danger of making too little of it. The Jews made too much of it. The Gentile danger is to make too little of it. Now the apostle says that we must be clear therefore that there is something special after all about the relationship of the Jews speaking of them as a whole as a nation to this whole purpose of God with respect to his people. What is it? Well, it seems to me that we can tabulate these again like this. First, the Jews have a special position in this matter because, after all, they were the first or the natural branches. At first, the olive tree consisted of them and of them alone. Abram and his own natural progeny. The Gentiles were right outside. The first branches, after all, in this olive tree were entirely and solely Jews. But, I hasten to add, in the second place, they are in that special position, not inherently, but because of God's choice of them and his promises to them. And because of what he has done in them and through them. Now, the apostles' way of putting that we've already seen in the ninth chapter and in verses 4 and 5. Why does he have this continual heaviness and sorrow in his heart with regard to his kinsmen? He says it's for this reason. They're Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. So I say they have a special position, not because there is something inherently good or exceptional about them, God didn't choose choose them because they were better than anybody else. He tells them that repeatedly in the Old Testament. But they're in a special position because God did choose them. They were the first that he chose. And he chose them in general as the natural progeny and seed of Abraham. So I come to the third lesson, which is this one. That while I say they have a special position we must assert equally strongly that they haven't got a separate position. Special, but not separate. Let me expound that. The Jews are only branches in the olive tree exactly like the Gentiles. They're no more. They're only branches. They're no more branches than the Gentiles, nor no less. They're just branches. They belong to the same olive tree as the Gentiles, but they are not the olive tree itself. They do not have and shall not have a separate or a different or a special salvation or position in God's kingdom. This notion that the Jews in some future age are going to come back and have some special position, so I'm carrying it even to the ridiculous extreme of saying that the Jewish portion of the church will remain always on earth, the Gentile will be in heaven, it's a blank contradiction of this teaching. I hope to elaborate this later as we go on with the apostles' argument. They're not going to have a separate position. All that is going to happen to them is that they're going to be grafted in again. They shall be grafted into this same olive tree that contains the Gentiles. Nothing more is going to happen to them. There's a great promise here. This is the apostle's argument that in a national sense they are going to be converted. Yes, but they'll be converted like everybody else and they'll be grafted into the same olive tree as Gentiles and all others who are believers. And they will come in not because... There is something inherently different and exceptional about them, but simply because of the grace of God. The apostle's argument is that the grace, which contrary to nature has put us in, can surely put them in also. But nobody else can put them in. God can, and he says that God is going to do so. But the point I'm emphasizing is this, that when they are converted and come in, they will come into the one olive tree, They will only come in as branches like other branches. The only special thing about them is that they are going to be brought in like that in a national sense. That's the only special thing about them. That is special and the apostle will give us the reasons as to why even that is the case. But we mustn't drive this point of being special to the point of being separate. No, no. There is only one olive tree. And all the branches are the same because they're all a faith. He'll work this out both positively and negative. In other words, there are no two churches. There never will be two churches. There will never even be two divisions in the Christian church. The Christian church is one and one only. And as regards the church and our eternal destiny, It doesn't matter at all whether we are Jews or whether we are Gentiles. I do trust this is clear. The thing to hold on to is that the olive tree is this people of God. That's the thing that matters. Not nationality. The only place where nationality comes in is this. That because the Jews were alone and exclusively the first branches of this olive tree they have this special regard in the sight of God And he will graft them in again. No more. They won't be superior to Gentile Christians. They won't even be different. All Christians will be the same. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, barbarian or Scythian, bond nor free. The only thing that is different is that because of this peculiar relationship as the first of the natural branches, they are going to be grafted in again. But remember that as regards the grafting, there is no difference between their being grafted in and the Gentiles being grafted in. It takes the same grace of God to convert a Jew as a Gentile and a Gentile as a Jew. And they will share the same blessings. They're all joint heirs of exactly the same promises and all the same blessed hopes. Well, there, it seems to me, is the meaning of this olive tree. This picture that the apostle puts before us here in this 17th chapter of this 11th, 17th verse of the 11th chapter of the mighty epistle to the Romans. Now then, having said that, he's in a position to address a certain appeal to the Gentiles. And I trust that next week, God willing, we shall see how it all now works out quite inevitably from this fundamental position. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we again thank thee for the mystery and the marvel of thy grace. O Lord, how can we as Gentiles thank thee sufficiently that thou hast ever grafted us into this olive tree? We thank thee equally, O God, that thou art going to deal with those first natural branches that thou hast cut off, that thou wilt graft them in again. We thank thee, O Lord, for the purposes of thy grace and for the glory of thy plan of redemption. O God, we pray Thee to increase our understanding. Help us to realize tonight, as we've never done before, that we are what we are by Thy grace. Thou hast done something contrary to nature, to us to bring us into such a position. We thank Thee for the root and fatness of this blessed olive tree. We thank Thee that we belong to the household of God, that we are Thy children, that we are fellow citizens with all the saints of all the centuries We thank Thee that we have one blessed hope to which we look forward together. O God, we do indeed rejoice in our position as being among Thy people, the covenant people of God. O Lord, grant that we may so realize it, that we shall ever be filled with a sense of wonder and of love and of praise. Hear us, O Lord, and grant us thy blessing as we part from one another this night, and now may the grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage and evermore. Amen.